0: All right, well, welcome, guys, to another episode of Rethinking Faith, which, again, uh, was formerly Theology Doesn't Suck, so we'll keep uh, throwing that out there for you guys as we continue to make this name change. But, again, welcome to another episode of Rethinking Faith. As always, I am Josh Patterson, and with me today is my amazing and bearded co-host, Marty Frederick. Marty, how's it going, man?
1: Not bad, Josh. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm, uh in podcasting from a little bit different scenery today i'm actually in my office at work what do you think see, it's beautiful right
1: <laughs> you've got some you've got some some dirty stuff on the wall behind you that you have to clean off i think um, there's some like there's a mess there's two really messy things hanging on your wall so no
0: that's that would be a washington capitals flag and a, a maryland flag which are both two of jesus's favorite things so um, <laughs> oh, i think no. you need to repent <laughs> Repent. I'll let
1: you, I'll let you have that wrong. Theology. You <laughs> need <to> rethink that.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Good. Well, good thing. You know, we're rethinking things. Yes. Sweet. Dude. Well, I think probably it would be wise because uh, I think we're going to have a really exciting conversation today. So maybe uh, we should just kind of cut to it and, and um, yeah. bring in our guests. What do you think?
1: That sounds good to me. I'm in.
0: All right. Well, forgive me, cool guest, if I pronounce your last name wrong. But with us today, we have Dr. Rob Dalrymple yeah did i do it right congratulations sweet all right i was so nervous about that the whole time and i never wanted to ask you how to properly say it <laughs> so sweet so Welcome. would you what would you prefer is is rob good rob is fine is mr the doctor good no, Rob is fine. <laughs> all right so um rob is a is a, a cool guy that i met uh, recently uh back in november at uh the annual sbl at society of biblical literature uh conference I had the privilege of uh, rooming with him and, and Dr. Jace Broadhurst. And, um, you know, Rob was gracious enough to, to come on and chat with us. So, Rob, thank you so much for the time you're giving us today. Well, Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, um, real quick, we do have one question that we ask all of our guests before we get into our interviews. It's really important. Um, and again, it's one of those things like, depending on how Marty's feeling today, uh, he may or may not end the interview based off how you respond. So um, this is our question. <laughs> what is your favorite ice hockey team? Oh,
2: well, it's the Boston Bruins.
0: Yeah. I knew it. Yeah. I knew it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that puts you in some good company, isn't? Sarah Bessie said that too, right, Marty?
1: She did. But, you know, here's the thing. You and I were talking earlier, Rob, about about Boston and Chicago teams having, having fights and. uh you know, although your Celtics gave my bowls a fit in the mid two thousands, I know I that
0: know,
1: I know, I know <laughs> that our black my Blackhawks uh took a Stanley Cup away from you guys yeah. on your home ice too, it, at yeah. worst. So I was a fan of that. But I'm sure you were not. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
0: Great. Awesome, sweet. Well, uh as everyone knows, I'm a Caps fan, so I have to, you know, be gracious to both of you and pray for your salvation based off your hockey preferences, but that's okay. Um, so Rob, if you could just, uh, for people who don't know you or aren't familiar with your work, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. Uh, I've been married to my wife, Tony for 30 years, uh, born in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. So grew up a Red Sox, Patriots, Celtics and Bruins fan. Um, moved to California when I was a young child. Um, we have My wife and I have four kids, Justin, Jordan, Jared, and Mackenzie. Uh, three boys are all grown with, um, with wives and one grandson, Oliver. My daughter is uh, 16 and a half, a uh, junior in high school. Uh, we now live in California. I live in Bakersfield, California. Um, I've been in academics and pastoring and teaching for over 30 years. I'm currently teaching a church here, uh, pastoring a church here in Bakersfield and try to keep my feet into the academic realm, writing books and blogs and uh, podcasts and uh, a contributor to Pathéos' website and things of that nature.
0: Awesome. That's great. And so um, along those lines, you're like, so you're also your scholar and your primary scholarly work, if I remember correctly, has been uh, mostly on the New Testament and specifically the book of Revelation. So could you tell us just a bit about uh, your story when it comes to uh, that book, the book of Revelation?
2: Sure. Um, I grew up uh, kind of in the church as a young child. Uh, started going to church probably about seven, eight years of age. And I grew up in a Baptist church. Um, it was a great experience for me in many ways, and they did wonderful things for me and from, in, in my life. But uh, that world that I grew up in was, um, I guess I'd say, kind of narrow uh, in its thinking, far right in its thinking. Um, And uh, I grew up in the '70s, early '80s. I was born in '66, by the way, which kind of (laughs) Um, and uh, but uh, you know, end times paranoia. Hal Lindsey was late, Great Planet Earth, late '60s, and so that was kind of the world that I grew up in, Um, uh, anticipating the end of the world, anticipating the rapture, anticipating you know the Russians invading, you know, all that kind of stuff that I I grew up with there um, in in a Baptist world, and and just had a desire for, for scripture and all that stuff there. And so my story is I became disillusioned um, as the 80s wore on, um, things weren't being fulfilled as I was told that they were going to be fulfilled. And uh, it, it seemed more and more as the 80s progressed that things were less likely to be fulfilled um, than what they were in the 70s. You know, the Russians were less likely to invade Israel and da-da-da-da-da. Uh, and so by the time 89 occurred and the Berlin Wall fell and uh, communism was, was toppled, um, I just became really disillusioned with um, the whole end time scenario um, in the book of Revelation. I really thought, you know how you have a, a blank page in your Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that maybe that blank page says like the New Testament. I really thought that we should have a page like that before the book of Revelation. And it's just, <laughs> say, do not trespass. Um, yeah. <laughs> because I just thought, you know, everybody says it means this, this, or this, and nobody's right. They're all wrong, and no one knows what it means and things of that nature. So, became disillusioned. Well, um, I went on to my studies, uh, New Testament studies, of course, and uh, they just wouldn't let me get through graduate school and my PhD studying 26 books in the New Testament. They said I had to study all 27 of them. So um, I kind of started getting deep in the early uh, 90s into um, just some popular commentaries in the Book of Revelation, um, evangelical ones, the New International Commentary in the New Testament series, a good scholarly, but kind of evangelical commentary. And I began going. Wait a minute! This isn't what I was told. This isn't what all the popular stuff guys are saying. You know, and and I began realizing, hey, this—the message of the Book of Revelation. This is this is awesome. And you know, you look at a good commentary, and they got footnotes, and you you read the footnotes, you're like, and everybody else is saying the same thing. You know, i mean, <laughs> it was citing scholar after scholar after scholar after scholar. After scholar, after scholar, after scholar and, all, and the message of the Book of Revelation became alive, and and, and it made sense, and it wasn't it wasn't super difficult to understand and it certainly wasn't this popular stuff that I, that I'd become accustomed to. So I went on and continued on with my studies and did a PhD in in, uh, the book of Revelation.
0: Awesome. Nice. And so um, I remember too, one thing uh, that you and I had talked about and that uh, you would say is that you found like the story of Revelation powerful uh, and compelling. And so can you kind of just, uh, give us, you know, give our listeners some insights into to what you mean by that.
2: Well, um, sure. Uh, give me a, f- a few minutes on this one then. Um, first, <laughs> I'd say uh, the book of Revelation is about Jesus. And, and the beauty of that is the fact that it doesn't really matter what strand of Christianity you come from and what denomination or Catholic or Orthodox or Methodist. We can all kind of agree on this one, right? That Jesus is the resurrected, glorified Lord of all creation, uh, uh, dead and risen again, and and the the one who was dead and is alive again. You know, and there's great descriptions of Jesus and his and his all of his glory. Um, if anything, and you read the book of Revelation, just kind of read those parts to see how Jesus is described, and and meditate upon that, and 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 dwell upon that. And you, you see creatures falling down and worshiping Jesus because he was slain, and, and he purchased with his blood men from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And just stop and worship, and 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 if we get anything out of Revelation, it's that. But but at the same time, you start looking through it, and you begin realizing that the Book of Revelation is a call to the church um, to be prepared and 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 to fulfill its mission. Um, and one of the things I'd say is that there's nothing really in the Book of Revelation that's not also taught elsewhere in the New Testament. So hmm. if we come up with um, some fanciful idea of what the book of Revelation says, but it, it, it can't be confirmed by anything else in the New Testament, then you're probably wrong. Um, and so throughout the New Testament, you see Jesus's call to the church to go out now, and I'm commissioning you to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. And so Revelation starts by telling us that the seven churches are seven lampstands, and where to put that light? And Revelation 21 says that the lamp is Christ, and so we put Christ on that lampstand, and That's our mission. That's our task. That's our call. Um, But then it goes on um, to kind of narrate a story. um, And that story, and we can go deeper if we want in that, but the story then is the story about how God's people are going to go bear witness to Jesus and make him known. uh, And not by being arrogant jerks on street corners, right? But by by lovingly, sacrificially, um, faithfully witnessing for Jesus, maybe just in my lifestyle and maybe sometimes in my words as well. Um, but we're going to suffer for it. And obviously Jesus says that in the Gospels, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you also. Again, it's all reaffirmed by the rest of the New Testament and the rest of the scriptures, but it's this great call to, to persevere, to overcome this great word in the book of Revelation, is the word overcome. Um, and that, that the nations, uh, you know, if we want to go deeper in the story, the nations are redeemed um, through the faithful, loving, sacrificial witness of God's people. So... All right. If you want to ask more questions, we can kind of go deeper on that if, we, if if you want, but that's, that's kind of the skinny of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like, um, do you think you could give like, cause you, I mean, you say that revelation is a story. Could you, and I know stories kind of all have movements. Could you kind yeah. of just go through like maybe the major movements, like kind of yeah. demystify revelation for us. Because I think a lot of people just think it's this, you know, big, scary, like yeah. dragons killing everybody. It's the end of the world kind of book. Right. Uh, when I think There's actually uh, perhaps a lot of beauty in Revelation.
2: Yeah, well, let me kind of walk us through it simply. So so there's really two stories, I I think. A great scholar, David says there's three three stories. I think there's really two. The first story is chapters one through three, and it says John's on an island, verse nine, um, uh, because of the uh, the testimony of Jesus, and he sees Jesus, and he's told to write in a book what he sees and send to the seven churches, right? All right, so John sees Jesus in verses nine through 20 or 12 through 20, um, and then chapters two and three, he writes seven letters to the seven churches, describing what he saw. Right. There's your story. Uh, 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 write what you see, and he writes what he sees. And, and, but all of a sudden, chapter four begins with says, uh, "And then I saw heaven opened." And like, oh, there's another story going on now, right? Or, or, and, then, and there's uh, um, a, a interrelationship between the two stories. Things in the seven letters continuously reappear throughout the, the second part of the book as well. But the second story then is John taken up to heaven, and in chapter four, he sees God sitting on a throne, although he doesn't really describe God because he's like a rainbow around the, you know, and, and, and he doesn't see God as much as he sees the beauty emanating from God. And these creatures are worshiping the father. And then chapter five, the father's got a book in his right hand, but it's sealed shut. And John's like, Oh no, who's going to, no one's worthy the book, that the lamb is worthy to open the book. Uh, and, he, and he sees, a, a, actually he hears that the lion is worthy to open the book, but then he looks and sees a lamb that was slain. And here's that beautiful imagery where, the, the lion is the conqueror, the king, the, the ruler, and uh, yet he was actually the lion by being the lamb that was slain. That that's how God rules. Mm. And so this lamb that was slain is worthy uh, to take the book and to open it up. And so he begins to open the book in chapter six and seven and uh, six and eight, uh, and and he begins to peel the scroll open. Uh, and and fast forward then to chapter ten, and I say that because. Uh, you know, we have the set of seals and the seven trumpets and, and, and six and then eight and then uh, eight and nine. Um, and people think, well, that's this catastrophic judgment. That's God's wrath on the earth. And and, 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 that's what, and, God, and it's about God's vengeance on the, on, on the people of the world. Um, and actually, I, I, I would say, no, that's not what's happening. Because at the end of the sixth trumpet, at the very close of chapter nine, it says that those who were not killed uh, still did not repent of the work of their hands. And so we see, wait a minute, if the goal of, of the story, and, and I think the scroll is God's will and, and how God's, God's perfect plan is going to be of redeeming creation, and redeeming creation includes humans and humanity and, and the nations becoming followers of Jesus, but also, also this holistic restoration of all creation. If that's the goal, um, what we find out is that at the end of the seals and trumpets, and specifically the seven trumpets, the six trumpets, the first six, um, it. it it doesn't bring repentance. The, the nations don't repent. Hmm. Well, then chapter 10 occurs now. So you have the father sitting on a throne. He's got a book in his hand. The lamb's worth it, open the book. The lamb begins to open the book. And then chapter 10 says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. And he has a book in his right hand that was open. Well, it, it's got to be the book that Jesus just broke the seals on, right? It, it, and, and it was open. And, and John says, um, he was told by, this, by, uh, by a voice from heaven, go take the book and eat it. Or or go take the book out of the angel's hand. The angel tells him, well, here, take the book and eat it. And so John eats the book. Uh, Now, another key to helping people understand the book of Revelation is that the imagery in the book of Revelation comes from the Old Testament. That's the primary place it comes from. So it's not like John seeing visions of some futuristic things. He's really kind of looking at the Old Testament story and and the imagery from the Old Testament and then uh, um, kind of unpacking it through the lens of Jesus. And so uh, in, the, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is commissioned as a prophet in Ezekiel chapters two and three, and he's told to eat the book, and he eats it, and it tastes like uh, honey in his mouth, but it made his stomach bitter, and so John does the same thing. He eats this book, uh, and it's sweet as honey in his mouth, but his stomach was made bitter after he had eaten it, and you see John's being commissioned to be a prophet, and so what's happening is judgment didn't bring repentance. We see that in chapter nine. The nations don't repent, 9, 20, and 21. Uh, and so instead, John, now you go prophesy. How is this going how, to, how's God's will of redeeming and restoring creation going to unfold? So John goes and prophesies, and when he prophesies in chapter 11 then, and how long the prophecy is is kind of, kind of being disputed, but it's certainly chapter 11. Um, and he sees two witnesses. Uh, and these two witnesses are the church. It's God's people throughout history. Um, and we know that because a number of factors, but one it says, the two witnesses are the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Hmm. Well, we know in chapters two and three that lampstands are churches. Hmm. So they're not individuals. They're corporate, right? There are at least two churches. Um, and I think there are two of them because the number of God's faithful witnesses is, are two, you know, where there, where, where there are two or three witnesses is uh, hmm. trustworthy. Sure. So that's why the number two is used. And so it's, it's, it's the witnessing power of the church. And what you see happen, and, and I think chapter 11 is kind of the key chapter of the book of revelation these two witnesses go out and they prophesy, right? Clothed in sackcloth, the, the garb of a prophet, right? Um, and they have the prophetic abilities of Moses and Elijah. They can turn the water into blood and they can make the, the, the sky stop raining for three and a half years. and, and all. So, so they're, they're described as Moses and Elijah, which is your Old Testament witness, right? The law and the prophets. Hmm. And, and it says in verse 7, it says, when they finish their testimony, and not until they finish, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. All right. So God's people are going to prophetically and faithfully witness to the nations and then die as a result of it. All right, then it says uh, that the nations rejoice when they're dead because they give gifts because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And it says, but after three and a half days, uh, they heard a voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud. And we're reminded in chapter one, Jesus was dead and he's alive forevermore. And he has the the keys of death and Hades. And and so the church is encouraged. Hey, we are called to be the lampstands to make Jesus faithfully persevere as God's witnesses. And when we're finished, we're going to die just like Jesus did. But guess what happens? We're resurrected. And then it says, and those who were left were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. There it is. How do the nations, what causes the nations to give glory to the God of heaven? Well, the seven trumpets don't. It says repeatedly, they did not repent so as to give Him glory. They did not repent of their deeds. um, And they did not repent so as to stop worshiping demons and idols, that's chapter nine. But when the two witnesses faithfully suffer and are sacrificed for the sake of the gospel and are resurrected, then the nations give glory to the God of heaven. And then immediately the seventh trumpet happens and it's the end. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and they will reign forever and ever. So there's your main story that, that that that's transpiring. Now you know we can go deeper if we want, but twelve through the rest, and then kind of kind of play this out and kind of add some more detail as to what's going. You know, David Barr says it's the third story in chapter twelve. Twelve isn't a third story. It's it's kind of giving more detail as to well, what's this war? that the beast wages against God's people. And we find out in 12, I won't play I won't with this too long, but in 12 that uh, it's the war that the Satan, the dragon of Satan, has waged against God's people throughout all of history. Uh, the, 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 the dragon stood before the woman, which represents Old Testament Israel, uh, trying to devour the child, which she had, which is the Christ child. It, Satan's always waging war against God's people. But because Christ was triumphant and was ascended into heaven, Revelation 12, it said that Satan's kicked out, and now he's after God's people. And it says he went after he went after the, the woman who gave birth to the, to the Christ child to make war against the rest of her offspring. And twelve seventeen says that the rest of her offspring are those who bear witness to Jesus. That's us. And so it, it's simply saying, hey, look, this war is the war that the devil has always raised against God's people. But hang in there and overcome. Um, because if you do, you'll have the right to eat from the tree of life. If you do... Uh, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. If you do, I'll grant you to sit down with me on my throne, just as I sat down with the Father on his throne. So it's, it's, it's this, I know what you're going through. I understand. Hang in there. Be faithful because it's worth it. Jesus was resurrected, and you'll be resurrected too. Um, and this is how God brings um, uh,
0: his kingdom. So how's that? Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> um, do, so then is, is this story is this story something that is primarily about our future? Like there's going to be, you know, should we be reading into it? Like, Oh, look at all this stuff going on. There's going to be these future events. Or is this uh, primarily about something that happened in the past? Is it both like what? Yeah. I'll say all of the above (laughs) with a a caveat. And that is this Uh, um,
2: I want to caution people about reading it as though it's some futuristic prophetic thing. Right. Okay. Uh, and, and, And let me say two things about that. Number one is, um, uh, we misunderstand what prophecy is. So the book of Revelation says it's an apocalypse. That's the very first word in the Greek text. And apocalypses are, are um, uh, they, they use a lot of imagery, um, dragons, uh, which we were told is Satan, you know, and, and beasts and things. Are, um, but apocalypses were written to a community in crisis to answer the question, how long? And you see that in chapter six. Um, uh, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? So it's written to a community crisis and to encourage them to say, uh, it'll be a little while longer. So not yet, but, but hang in there and it'll, and it'll be worth it. Uh, and you, so you see this apocalyptic element in the book of Revelation. Revelation is also a letter. Uh, I, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who what I, So it's a letter. And, and it, the last word in the book of Revelation is amen. It, it has a letter closing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's written to seven churches. And Letters like Ephesians or Colossians were written to a particular people at a particular time. So we can't just say, oh, it's written to some future generation. No, it was written to seven churches at the time of John, at the time of the first century. Um, but it also describes it as a, itself as a prophecy. Blessed are those who read the words and, and, and heed the, the, pro- the words of the prophecy of this book, okay? So in prophecy, I know I, I used to think when I grew up, that was, oh, God foretelling and predicting the future. But prophets, whether you go to Isaiah or any of the prophets of the Old Testament, or Jesus, or Paul, or Revelation, prophets were uh, written to the people of the day and exhorting them to be faithful to God's word. Now um, the idea is that if you're not faithful, God will bring the God will do this, uh, and if you are faithful, God will do this. So we look at the God will do this part and go, that's the focus. It's, it's what God. And the answer is no. Um, the focus is be faithful now to, to that generation at that time. And in fact, uh, if you're faithful now, the negative stuff isn't. You can avoid that if you are obedient to the covenant. Now, some of the prophets will go, hey, guess what? It's too late. You have had your chance. God's going to do this, and it's guaranteed. But oftentimes, prophets, the prophets were just conditional. If you do not obey, God will kick you out of land. If you do not obey, God will bring in invaders to, to punish you, etc. So you read the book of Revelation as a prophecy then, and a prophecy is written to the people of that day saying, be faithful to the word. And what is the faith, what what are they exhorted? Well, what what we just said, the story is, be witnesses for Jesus and be faithful because he was resurrected, so you too will be resurrected and be victorious.
0: Hmm. So then like the the wrathful bits then, you mentioned God's wrath, uh, in the book of Revelation, Um, are, do you think they should be more understood as like, this is like God carrying out some kind of wrathful, uh, activity or is the wrath more so like, Hey, if you keep doing dumb stuff, then, you know, these are going to be the results that happen. Almost like you're going to, you know, reap what you sow. Um, not so much because God is like bringing down an iron fist, but maybe more so because these are the natural consequences of you know you being stupid, <laughs> if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, there, there is to some extent maybe a truth in that, right? The things that, the things that are unfolding are the natural consequences of, of human endeavors, right? Uh, wars and rumors of wars and violence and famines. And, uh, you, you look at wars, and rumors of wars, it's people being stupid. You look at famine and things like that. And oftentimes it's the fact that they got food, it's just the people who have the food have the guns and they're not giving it to the people. And that's why, uh, So so there is a little bit of that. But I, I think when you look at the wrath in the Book of Revelation, um, if I can kind of go back a little bit and, and put it in a, in a, in a broader context, um, the Book of Revelation kind of has a holy war context to it, right? And and that's often misunderstood. The first thing is this: is holy war is not fought with God, you know, bringing violence and wrath and plagues and hail. And um, the, the the war that's in the Book of Revelation is the, uh, is waged with the sword that comes out of Jesus's mouth. Right? Mm. That, that, Jesus is riding a white horse and he's got a sword. That's the only weapon that there is on God's side is a sword. But the sword comes out of his mouth. So it's not like he's actually slaying people with a sword because we know that the sword, the sword is his spoken word, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Thessalonians says that, that, that God will slay his enemies with, with, with the breath of his mouth. So it, it's, it's Christ coming at his return. That's the day of judgment. That, and, and, and he slays his enemies with his spoken word as, as the final judgment. So there's one context of wrath. Actually, it's, it's really being uh, uh, limited to this final judgment. Right? The, the, another thing about holy war in the Book of Revelation then is that it's the war that's waged against us. In other words, you know, I grew up as I said a, a little earlier that you know, oh, Revelation's about you know Russia invading Israel, and you know, and, and we think that it's, it's war fought in the Middle East, right? Um, you know, and tragically, uh, the sad part is, is that that kind of thinking leads us to sit back and kind of clap our hands when war breaks out in the Middle East. All right. Mm -hmm. If I can give you a caveat here, Uh, uh, I have been in high level conversations. So this is not hearsay. This is high level conversations with people on the inside who have sat there and said that there are hundreds of U.S. Congressmen that would be excited if war broke out in the Middle East (laughs) and a gentleman in the back seat. Uh, I said, we were driving in the car at the time, and I had an Israeli, um, uh, uh, a Christian, and a Palestinian uh, Christian in the car, and they were flabbergasted at the statement of the, the gentleman made. Um, but the gentleman knows. All right? And uh, uh, Salim Munair, a, a Palestinian Christian, said, "Why would they be excited that war broke out in the Middle East?" And I turned to Salim and I said, "Salim, because they would view it as Armageddon." Mm, this idea that that the Bible is describing this warfare on a human level in the Middle East and that this is a sign of the end of the world has actually influenced our, our policy such that we're actually excited. And Jesus said, you know, the, Jeremiah says, God does not delight in the death of anyone. So how could Christians be rejoicing when someone dies or be rejoicing that there's warfare to be, oh, it's a sign of, of the end? So in the book of Revelation, it's like, no, the, the war that's waged in the book of Revelation is against us. 11, chapter eleven seven. 7, when the two witnesses have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them. Hmm. Right? Revelation 13, 7, the beast will make war with God's people, right? Um, and so, uh, and that's always the case um, uh, throughout the New Testament, that the war that's waged is the war that the devil wages against us, right? You know, the war that we is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces, right? You see that in Paul, and so, but God's people fight back not with war, but with love, right? We 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 love. And historical precedents for this, we know that historically the church has always grown when it suffers, right? The famous quote from Tertullian, the second, the third century: "The blood of the saints is is the seed of the church." So. Uh, so, if we put this first off, this warfare in the context of what the devil wages against God's people, all right. So now you see, you know, your question was, this is this about the future, about the past? Well, that's just a war that's always been happening throughout history, Old Testament, throughout, you know, Pharaoh waging war against the Israelites through uh, Jesus' crucifixion, the persecution of the early church, and, and then historically, right, uh, including the present day, uh, and realizing that our brothers in North Korea, our brothers in parts of Nigeria, our brothers in Indonesia, our brothers and and sisters in China, they're fighting the brunt of this, you know, ISIS is chopping heads off, you know, right? It's a real war in that sense, but we don't wage that war in response with weapons, but with love. Um, And then the next part then would be when you do see the wrath uh, unveiled, uh, especially chapter 16 now, the seven bowls of God are poured out. Note, the first thing is, is God pours out his wrath because of what they have done to God's people, right? Uh, it says, after the third bowl is poured out, he says, I, I heard um, the angel of the water saying, you are just in your judgments, you who are and who were, because they have poured out the blood of your saints and prophets, and you've given hmm. the blood to drink. And so you'll note the seven bowls are poured out. And they're poured out because they have poured out the blood of your saints and prophets, So it's God giving what you reap, you shall sow, right? As you said, uh, it's God giving vengeance and justice to God's people upon the world for what they've done to God's people. But no, the seven bowls, that's the end. That's, I I, I would say the seven bowls are, that's judgment day. It's all a, a description, not of things that are happening in chronological sequence, but it's simply a depiction of the, of the wrath of God. It's, um the seven bowls are introduced in chapter 15 and it says the temple of god was, was was closed for business no one could enter the temple any longer until the seven bowls were poured out <clears throat> and the reason why the, the temple is closed for business is there's no more repenting now uh, so I, I think you can look at the seven bowls then as, as happening at, at as one climactic moment in history even though they're kind of described in a narrative form of this one happened and this one happened and this one happened but it's it's the judgment day and the seventh bowl is poured out and it says it is done mm. there you go so
0: yeah and with with that judgment day uh imagery too like one thing um rob i think i shared with you i have a, a pretty strong uh ethic and commitment to nonviolence, and so i tend to I try to read scripture through that lens all right um and one thing that always gets thrown in my face is that Because I'll be like, oh, well, you know, Jesus, nonviolent, da, da, da. And people will be like, no, that, you know, that's just your hipster Jesus. He's a pushover, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. In Revelation, you know, who was it? Driscoll that said that Jesus comes back as a UFC fighter ready to kick some ass. I'm pretty sure that's a direct quote from Mark Driscoll. That's a shame. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so, like. But but, like you said this the sword is is coming from Jesus's mouth, okay. um but they would then point out like, oh well, he's covered in blood, so he's obviously killing somebody now, I think they're wrong, and I think I know why they're wrong um but do you have a, a comment on on perhaps the the blood soaked robe of Christ yeah
2: well, let me kind of get to that in a second if I can and kind of sure. ask okay question in terms of the the nonviolence um uh, I have Become persuaded of that that nonviolence is indeed biblical and and um and uh we were talking before we got on air about um, uh, um bill's uh, webb's book and, and I think that you that you see in in scripture a trajectory of God not wanting violence in the Old Testament but kind of allowing it he didn't mm-hmm. want Israel to have a king because kings are known as those who go to war yeah that's why, they, that's why they weren't supposed to have a king and then you see. Jesus come along and and the question is this: how did Jesus establish his kingdom or maybe I'll ask it this way when was Jesus crowned king and and the answer is the cross right Mm -hmm. he's got a crown of uh, of thorns on his head and the sign above his head says Jesus of Nazareth king of the gospel writers are clearly portraying the moment of Jesus' coronation as the cross right So the answer is the kingdom of God is established through loving, faithful, sacrificial witness of God's people, beginning with Jesus as the faithful witness, right? Uh, And note, by the way, faithful witness is the first description of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then God's church, God's people then are called to carry that out. The kingdom comes through our faithful, loving, sacrificial death, right? And the resurrection plays out. So I think that is this nonviolent reaction there, right? And we could talk about one-offs, what happens if someone's attacking your wife. All right. Leaving that aside for now, I think there's a biblical principle of pacifism pacifism there. All right. Yeah. Then the violence of Jesus then, uh, in in the book of Revelation, again, is this climactic moment of judgment day. Um, You see the sword coming out of his mouth is his spoken word. So he's not... Doing what Driscoll says, and I won't use the profane language that Driscoll uses. Yeah, sorry about that. No, no, you're also. Know, it is what it is, right? And 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 what have you? But um, uh, it's it's God coming in judgment, um, and I think there's a grieving there. I, I think God grieves at the fact that I've given you all this chance, all these opportunities to, uh, in love, uh, to repent. I, I think the Book of Revelation is a love story, and. That love story is, I'm going to send not only my son to die for you, but I'm going to send my people to die for you, right? And the two witnesses are dying for you. Um, And there still happens to be, however, some who will refuse to repent. And those who refuse to repent, well, there is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know, it says in Revelation 11, there's the holy city of the New Jerusalem, which is the the church, It's, it's us. It says that they will be trampled, the outer court will be trampled, for 1,260 days. Uh, And then in Revelation 14, it describes Christ and the angel of judgment. And and it says um, that the grapes of judgment were trampled because you see, if they trample God's people, God tramples them. God pours out bowls of wrath on them because they poured out blood of the saints. So it's simply God's justice and and, um, God is a God of justice and you can't separate love from justice or holiness from love and justice. Um, and, but I think uh, that when we read into the fact that God does not delight in the death of anyone, I don't know that God's rejoicing in this, at this time. I think that this is grieving uh, uh, to him. So um, yeah, the other way I would put it is this. If you read the book of Revelation, you're never gonna find a war in it. <laughs> you find references, they make war against God's church. Okay, um, But when you look at like uh, they wage war against the lamb Right. Mm-hmm. And then it says, and the Lamb overcame them because He's King of Kings. It doesn't. There's no no battle actually described. It just says, and the Lamb overcame them. It says in Revelation twenty that, that Satan will will gather uh, these people from the four corners of the earth, to, and they're going to surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. There's hmm. there's no war. It's, it's, yeah. That's it. So um, I, I think what you're just what you have described there then is this finite, uh, climactic moment. All right, now, the blood on Jesus' robe in Revelation twenty is uh, is intriguing. And I really don't know that there's a definitive answer. You you have two possibilities there. Um, One, of course, early in Revelation 7, it refers to this um, great multitude that has their robes washed white in the blood of the lamb. So you have this blood imagery of the lamb and of the lamb's own blood that washes the robes of God's people white, uh, which is beautiful imagery because how do you get white from blood, right? But we know what it means, right? The, The purity of God's people is because of the blood of the lamb. So you have that imagery that you could you could look at Revelation 20 and say, okay, we know the blood-soaked garments are the blood of the, of the lamb, but that doesn't quite fit because the blood-soaked garments are actually made white and Jesus' blood is stained red.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So then you have Isaiah 63 that says uh, that uh, his blood is is red because he's trampled upon his enemies. Um, and, and you have Revelation 14 where it says that he... Uh, the, the, the the unrighteous are trampled uh, uh, and the, the wine presses tread outside the city uh, and blood came out of the wine press uh, for, for 12, stadia, or, uh, 1,600 stadia. Um, uh, uh, and so you have that imagery also from Isaiah that's picked up in Revelation 14. So I would tend personally to lean that it actually, it's the blood of his enemies, um, but it's the blood of his enemies in climactic judgment, not, as though God's like enjoying this um, Mm -hmm. there. Because remember, um, going back to the story in the book of Revelation now, so four and five, you have God sitting on a throne. Five, you have the lamb having taken the scroll and and beginning to open it. And when he opens it up in chapter six, you you start having these seals that, uh, when he breaks the seal, something happens. And he breaks another seal, something happens. And by the way, the seven seals are not judgment. Uh, That's not what they're about. The fifth seal, it says... The soul, I saw the souls under the altar of those who had been slain. There you go. The, the people that are slain in the book of Revelation is us. It's God's, it's, right? Um, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, it says. And it says, and then they cry out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Okay. So one of the things Revelation is, when are you going to avenge our blood? When are you going to bring justice? Now they're told... Um, to rest for a little while longer. They were given white robes, which we know are made white in the blood of the Lamb in chapter seven. And they were told to rest for a little, little while longer until the number of their fellow servants who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. So when are you going to avenge our blood? And that's this, I, I think that might be the blood-stained uh, garment of Jesus in chapter 20. I, I've done it. I, I've avenged your blood. And chapter 19 says that, that salvation to our God because he's avenged, our, he avenged the blood of his bond servants. Um, But note, I'm not doing that until all my people who are going to be killed have been killed. And then remember what chapter 11, it's the killing of God's people and their subsequent resurrection that brings the redemption of the nations. Mm. And so it's not God's coming in justice because he wants justice as much as it's God's coming in justice because he's given the opportunity for redemption as long as possible now. And and now redemption has been finalized. The rest of you aren't clearly aren't going to repent. And, and now we have uh, God's wrath.
0: Mm. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Um, and also too, I know, cause we're going to make a, a quick turn to a uh, absolutely related topic, but it's going to broaden the conversation a little sure. bit. But before we jump there, uh, you wrote a book, just so our listeners know, you wrote a book uh, on the book of revelation called follow the lamb that mm. people can find on Amazon. Um, is there somewhere better that? You would prefer people to find that? No, Amazon's great. Uh, it's
2: available on, uh, on Amazon. All my books are available on Amazon.com. Just look up Rob Dalrymple, um, uh, which they probably can't spell. So look up <laughs> "Follow the Lamb." Uh, Dalrymple yeah. has a Y in it. D A L R Y M P L E. I really enjoyed the book. Follow. If I can put a quick plug in for it. What, sure, what, absolutely. What "Follow the Lamb" was? This is uh, the, the subtitle of the book is a guide to reading, understanding, and applying the Book of Revelation. Um, and what you find is, is people kind of, I want to study the book of Revelation and they go pick up this book and I has like 300 pages on how to understand the imagery and, and this and the seals and, that, and by the time they're done, they're like confused and they really don't know where to go. Right? <laughs> um, because, it, it, you know, what is the millennium and what is the views of this and what are the views of preterism and futurism and all right, so what I did in the book is I, I just took one chapter at, at a time. And I said, okay, here's a key to understanding the book. Chapter one is it's about Jesus. And I say, and here's the keys about Jesus, and the end of the chapter then has a bunch of questions that basically basically force you to kind of okay, now go read this passage and this passage and this passage and see how Jesus is described and see what it means. And okay, cool. All right, now, chapter two. Here's another key: how to read the book of Revelation. And okay, and so they're like eight pages long, ten pages long, six pages long, um, and it gives you a key. And then the end of the chapter has now go read the go read these passages and see how they um. Un- so you're, you're in the book of revelation from the kind of the beginning, uh, and the book is being unfolded before you and you can kind of make sense a little piece at a time. And so mm-hmm. ten, fifteen 10, 15 chapters or so on, on, uh, each chapter kind of explaining, like, you know, by the time you get to maybe seven, eight, or nine, there's a chapter on numbers. What do we do with the numbers and how do we understand them? Okay, well, here are the keys. Okay. Now I'll go see the numbers and see how this makes sense. So that's kind of the key there.
0: Yeah. It's and a great book. Great book yeah. too. Right. I, uh, yeah, I read through it and it's, it was really accessible. Um, that was another thing I really liked about it. It was very accessible. I um, mean, I liked you know, the guided uh, readings and such. But sorry, Marty, I, I cut you off. But we'll be sure you- to put that in the show notes as well so people can pick it up.
1: Absolutely. You know, and kind of along the topic of books you've written, you've also written a book on eschatology. Yeah. Um, and uh so I realize that this question is a pretty broad question, but can you talk a little bit about that topic and then when you know perhaps yeah. as you kind of set it up, we can kind of narrow it down to some sure. some maybe more more uh, narrow issues and on, on eschatology.
2: All right. Um so my book, uh the original title was Understanding Eschatology, and then I realized that people don't know what eschatology means <laughs> um Eschatology means the study of the end times. Uh, eschatos is the Greek word for um, end or last things. Um, so, I, so we put a second edition out and we, we titled it Understanding the New Testament and the End Times. Um, and the key actually uh, is the subtitle of the book is Why It Matters. Mm. Um, and what I argue in the book is that eschatology is the entire New Testament. It's not some futuristic thing. You know, the question earlier about Revelation being about the past, present, or future. Um, the eschaton, the last days, began with the coming of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, the eschaton began. Jesus says, "The kingdom of God is at hand." There you go; it's begun now with the coming of Jesus. The key feature of the eschaton, of course, is the presence of the Spirit or the presence of God, which was Jesus for three and a half years during His ministry years. Uh, but of course, the coming of the Holy Spirit. That, that's the key, is that, that we must read the entire New Testament as though the beginning of the end times has, has, is unfolding now, uh, in and through Jesus. But here's the other key, and that's this. The eschaton uh, and the kingdom of God is, comes through, well, I'll say it again, the faithful, loving, sacrificial witness of God's people. So the kingdom of God is actually being built, thy kingdom come on earth. It comes as God's people faithfully persevere as sacrificial witnesses for Christ, loving the nations, I think passively, right, kind of a pacifistic world as well, not with violence, but with love, um, and proclaim Jesus to, to, the, to the nations. Um, and then we, the Spirit of God uh, uh, fills the earth as people become uh, followers of Christ. And then that climaxes, of course, in the second coming of Jesus. So, mm-hmm. so why does it matter? Well, it matters because the view of eschatology that I grew up with said, just sit back and kind of watch the news and, and kind of clap your hands as these congressmen do when there's war in the Middle East, which is grievous. Absolutely. Um, and, and, um, and, and be passive onlookers as, as we watch the end times unfold. Um, instead, I think the New Testament says, no, the kingdom of God comes only when God's church is actively out there engaged in making Jesus known. Hmm. Um, and so uh, I kind of go, you know, the devil's actually really smart, isn't he? Yeah. Because he knows that the kingdom of God is built when God's people are active and the devil has actually caused us to have a view of the end times that t- causes us, us to sit back and wait for the rapture uh, or, <laughs> or wait for earthquakes to happen and, and we oh yeah, there's more earthquakes, I'm excited about this. You know, global warming, <laughs> awesome. You know, yeah. No, global warming means more fires in, in, in Australia and people are dying and these you know, yeah. animals are, are, might go extinct as a result. What do you mean it's ex- awesome?
1: This, yeah. is, this is the opposite of awesome. Well, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, over, I mean, I'm 35 years old. So in my lifetime, this has happened a few times. I'm sure it's happened quite a bit more in the history of time. But there seems to be these people that seem to feel like they've received some sort of special revelation that like on a specific day is when you know, the end times are going to happen or, you know, there is, I mean, it was pretty recent, you know, I remember it was, you know, maybe it was even like in 2012, that was like the Mayan thing I get, but that was a little kind of separate, but there seems to be these zealots that seem to come up with, you know, I've had this special revelation reading scripture that on this specific day, Jesus is returning. And so be prepared, be ready. And, uh, and then those days come and go, and nothing happens. Right. And these people are sort of are sort of seen as you know outcasts in the Christian community. Um, I mean, obviously the answer is simple. Jesus said, "No one knows the time or the hour." <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, well, but I mean, me.
2: I, I do. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but can you can you kind of talk a little bit about about that concept? I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously number one, the heart issue. Like, why are people so concerned about discerning the day, even though Jesus asked us not to, uh, or told or commanded us not to? But uh, I think, I think the other side of that, practically, you know, what is the, I mean, there's this mysticism yeah. almost about eschatology and the book of revelation and like discerning when that's going to be, I mean, mm-hmm. like, what's the, like, what's the excitement? <laughs> you, you were kind of alluding to that, like, you know, well, look at all these earthquakes and, you yeah. know, hurricanes getting stronger. Oh, it must mean the time is, is, is nay, you know, and like, right. why are people so like excited and, and crazy about that?
2: There's a number of things there I could probably get, I get to, but let me kind of cut to, I think, the key, and that is that, um, and I have a chapter in my book, Understanding the New Testament and the End Times, on the Second Coming, and I kind of dispel the popular things that we think, okay, these things have to happen before Jesus returns. I'm like, no, that's actually not what it's talking about. Uh, and I say, instead, the Bible says that, that these things have to happen, and the things that have to happen is that God's people have to die, right? The, uh, how long, the Lord, to you avenge our blood? Well, not until all the witnesses have been killed, Revelation 6. Um, the gospel has to go out to the to, uh, to, uh, to the nations, and it doesn't mean that once every nation's received the gospel. That, but the, the nations are receiving the gospel, uh, the conversion of the nations. That's in Acts uh, three, um, and then the holiness of God's people, which is interesting, right? And, and, and Peter it says um, that that God's the holiness of, our, of God's people can hasten the day of His coming. It says in Second Peter three, um, and so. Uh, but what we find in Scripture is Jesus is fact, no one knows the day or hour. Um, now we do know that the world will be going, uh, oh, eating and drinking and being married and giving into marriage until, until the end. Right. So we know that the world is actually going to be, uh, uh, in, in the fog. They won't know. Now we won't know either because Jesus does say, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Okay. So you don't know when the thief is coming, <laughs> but what we do see in the scriptures is, but blessed is the one who stays awake because. you won't be surprised, right? Because we're prepared. So the New Testament doesn't tell us when Jesus is going to come. It just tells us we have to be prepared. You know, uh, Matthew 24, you know, keep watch, be ready, all right? because you don't know when the head of the household is going to return. So Revelation 21 in the, the Armageddon passage, I'm sorry, Revelation um, 16 in the Armageddon passage, it, it, there's kind of this parenthesis and it says, blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his garments with him, mm-hmm. lest he go about naked and men see his shame so you don't know when armageddon is going to happen again armageddon is the war against god's people you you don't know when the final element of that's going to happen maybe that's the way i'll say it um but we are to be prepared and we're to be ready and we are to be prepared how by being holy uh, by growing as disciples of jesus and as the prophetic witness of jesus Mm. and the church is doing its job we're ready that's why i think it's so crucial the subtitle of my book is why it matters it matters because we must be doing justice. We must be doing uh, um, advocacy uh, for the kingdom, uh, kingdom purpose. We must be being faithful witnesses. We must uh, uh, be, uh, be growing in holiness because that is what will precipitate the coming of Christ. Mm.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I-, I, was, I was given a book, uh, when I was in college I won't name the authors Rob I'm sure you'll know the authors and Rob or, or, or uh, yeah, Josh you may know the answer or the authors too it's called Are We Living in the End Times uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it had it happened to go along with a fictional uh, uh, end times yeah. series of books and I remember reading through the book and feeling like well I mean if you really think logically, a lot of these earthquakes and things like that, they've probably been happening for an extended period of time, <laughs> you know, for, since Jesus came, you know, in, in, in the first place. And so, I mean, how do we know that like, Oh, well, two earthquakes happen at once. Well, you know, let's look at the fault line and see like where that all lies. So of course two earthquakes happen pretty close together. Cause it's like, on the same so it was it was uh, it was an interesting book to receive, and I still have it just because I think it 's interesting sometimes to look through that and see, but it, it also goes to show that you know there is a lot of misinformation out there
0: right. on
1: eschatology and on the end times, and i and in many ways, I find that to be pretty dangerous. I think that yeah. there 's a lot of yeah, Christians sure. that that you know they they think it's when when they hear the word imminent they think you know in the next few years and so you know and for them that means like in my lifetime i'll get to be here but maybe i won't be because i'll be i'll be whisked off to heaven with my with my fellow brothers and sisters and you know everyone else will have to suffer you know like like buck williams uh, <laughs> in and the left behind series yeah. and you know and, and and so i think a lot of that stuff it's it's i i, I find that to be fairly dangerous because i think yes. out of out of out of the most important topics in the church that people ought to be concerned about and have good understanding on and feel like they have good theology around. This is one of those topics that people should have that. And yet I feel like very few of your, of, of your non-scholarly believer, you know, your general Sunday church goer that lives their faith throughout the week as well, but doesn't, had, has not gone to seminary, doesn't read scholarly books at all. Isn't really interested in all those types of discussions. Um, I find that they don't have any knowledge about this kind of thing, and I and I think that that's a real shame because it's something that you know if they don't know about, they they're missing such a huge core of what it means to follow Jesus. Mm -hmm.
2: And I think that's actually the key, right? So I I would say, are we living in the last days? Um, Yes, we have been for two thousand years, right? The last
1: right. (laughs) And you
2: know, Acts two, in the last days I'll pour out my Spirit. The last days began at Pentecost, so you can say that with the baptism of Jesus. So we, we are. Uh, I do have a chapter in my book, uh, Understanding the New Testament and the End Times, on uh, earthquakes and all that are these signs of the, of, of the end. So I, I deal with that in, in, in the book there. Um, but then I think the other key then is um, we should be focused on the church being the church and instead of all these peripheral things and, and, and what have you. God will bring the end in his own time. And in a sense, um, the end is a point of grieving because there's no more repenting. And so, if there's no more repenting, then I'm not sure I should be so excited that it's going to be tomorrow. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, the good news is the kingdom of God will come in totality. There'll be no more mourning or crying or death or pain because the old ones passed away. So there's not going to be any more of that, and that's the good news. Um, and there's justice uh, uh, and fullness. But there's also, hey, I have loved ones that don't know Jesus, and you know, I'm not sure I want him to come today because what if they haven't repented yet? You know, and. and yeah. And, and so I think when we look at it that way, so uh, exactly, and that's why the subtitle again is why it matters because it's so it's yeah. so crucial.
1: Well, yeah, I think can... be, I think being in the hands and feet of Jesus yeah. is is the being ready. <laughs> you know yeah. that's that's what being ready is is you know yeah, by exactly. us simply that's being right. the hands and feet of Jesus in our own communities as well as in in all of Judea Samaria and to the rest of the world that's you know right. we're being the hands and feet of Jesus that's the best way to be prepared for the return that's understanding eschatology at the beginning and then mm-hmm. understand if you want to know more there is more so much more to know but i think i think people are like you said more concerned about figuring out the day or they're more concerned about, you know, well, you know, I have to watch what's going on in Israel. And is there a big, is there a big army amassing about, about to invade Israel? Well, that must mean that, you is know, it? it's really imminent right now because I, I read somewhere about some great army of the North, you know, and, and I, I heard something about that. And so that must mean that, Oh, well, if I just pay attention for that, yeah and when that happens, then everything will be, then I'll be set. And it's, well, I don't think it's as simple as just looking for, I, I, don't, I don't think God would have done so much, so much intricacy throughout all of history to make that be the thing that, you, that now you say, oh, well, now I've got, you know, six months to get my life together and, you know, and repent and reconcile with, with the other believers that I've hurt and make sure that I'm totally good in my faith. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think God would have, I don't think that's what he would do, so...
0: Yeah. And then Rob, if you don't mind, I want to ask like a, it's going to be a super blunt question, sure. but then I want to jump on real quick and just talk about some really cool uh, practical work that you're doing and then wrap things up. Cause I know we want to be faithful to your time, but here's my super blunt question. Um, and I'm going to give kind of a, uh, like my thought real quick, but so my blunt question is, is the rapture a thing? And um, the reason I ask is because I, I, uh, tend to see the rapture is almost like an escapist theology um, that gives us permission not to care about the things that you've been saying are so important, being the hands and feet of Christ, caring for the earth, you know, um, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And then it it creates this like platonic dualism where what matters is our soul going to some wispy place in the sky where instead revelation 21 depicts heaven coming to earth. Right. And so what do you think about that?
2: yeah so the difficulty in answering the question is is that is it's a def, it's a matter of definitions right okay
0: so if uh if we
2: define rapture as the resurrecting of god's people uh up to meet christ in the air as, as first Thessalonians says uh where we uh are um resurrected and glorified our our physical body may be reunited with our soul if perhaps if we've gone on however that works whatever doesn't all right then certainly we're, no problem at all. all right. um, yeah, we're, we're, there's a rapture, that, that God's church is resurrected up to return to the earth with Christ. Okay. Um, but the problem is, is that the word rapture tends to have this, um, this meaning in popular evangelicalism of a pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib um, um, tribulation concept. Right. And that concept says that there's, or maybe three and a half years right at the end of history where all the blood and gore and violence and wrath of Revelation kind of unfold. All right. That schema, I would say, no, no, no. There's nothing in Scripture that supports that at all. The time frame in Revelation is describing the entire period of the New Testament um, from, the second coming, from, the, from the coming of Jesus until his second coming. Um, it's not describing some last three and a half years or last seven years. It's describing, well, so far, 1900 and some odd plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, there. So that schema that the word rapture is basically associated with, um, I would deny. So if you say, do you believe in the rapture? i say, well, no, if you mean by it pre-mid post-trib rapture views. Yeah. say rapture in the sense of the resurrecting of God's people to return to the earth with Christ at a second coming. Um, does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that distinction is really helpful because I would say like I guess similarly if someone asked me I would say well I don't necessarily believe in the rapture but the second coming of Jesus yes absolutely and I think that's just the the distinction right exactly. Yeah cool
2: Exactly yeah and and then the key of of course also is the danger of rapture theology is that we sit back and to happen watch the news and maybe even rejoice when evil and earthquakes and, and wars and things and violence take place right. instead of actively being engaged in being the bearers of God's kingdom in the world Boy that's that's serious stuff. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can see the the damages of that and then also too there's a huge I know uh, a buddy actually you met him at SBL Dan uh Coke is is working on getting his uh, PsyD I'm um, in psychology and he's done this big extensive research on uh yeah. that kind of left behind rapture theology and the psychological damage that it has done to different people. And It's yeah. been really interesting. So that's that's a project to keep an eye on for sure. Um, but can you just, uh, real quick to, to point out some of the, the really cool practical things that you've been, you know, that you do with this stuff. Um, like I understand that you do a lot of work with regards to the Middle East and the whole Israel Palestine, uh, you know, bit in particular. So like, how did you get started with that? What does that look like? What kind of work are you doing, um, there? Yeah.
2: Um, and, and, and there's almost a little bit of fear because I know we're running low on time that maybe we might have to do this as another, as another podcast and kind of expand Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, And we can certainly uh, talk about that as well. Um, So there's kind of a story behind it as well that I I don't have time this morning to to delve into. Um, But uh, the reality is um, is I became aware uh, 15 or more years ago now that there were Christians in the Middle East, Um, and I'm sorry, but I was ignorant. You know, I'm I'm 53 years old. If you haven't figured out six (laughs) six six yet, you know, here here I am. uh, You know, middle aged. Teacher in the church, a, a professor, and everything else as well, and had no real understanding that there were Christians in the Middle East. And I began realizing uh, that they're suffering, and they're suffering greatly, and a lot of times um, they're suffering for uh, n- numerous reasons there. Um, and um, I began realizing, boy, I, I almost as soon as I open up this 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 box of of this Pandora's box, it's going to create so many other questions that we won't have time to get into today. So so I'll keep it simple. I I simply think that the church has responsibility that, that the war in the scriptures in the book of revelation is what's waged against God's people. It's not waged against physical Israel or the Middle East. Da, 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 da. And so what's happening in Israel Palestine today is that the Israelis are suffering um, and the Israelis um, uh, are living in, in fear uh, and legitimately, uh, you know, there many of the Israelis today are, are grandkids of Holocaust survivors or people that, w- that were killed in the Holocaust. Um, And Israel is a a state that uh, in the Middle East that's that's tenuous, and its uh, survival is threatened every day by Iran and by surrounding nations. And so there's this legitimate narrative of fear uh, by Israelis. Now, again, the word Israeli means a citizen of the state of Israel, and there actually are Arab Israelis, there are Palestinian Christian uh, Israelis, and there there are Jewish Israelis um, also. Um, But then alongside them are Palestinian Christians um, who live in the West Bank and Gaza, or, or Palestinians, and Palestinians are Muslims and Christians. Uh, There was a heavy Christian population uh, years ago, and now it's less than 2% of Palestinians are Christians. They're being driven out. Uh, They're being driven out for various reasons, partly because Israel's narrative of fear has caused them to have uh, an occupying presence over the West Bank beginning in 1967. Um, and we could debate all day long, i don 't think it 's worthwhile to do so whether that, <laughs> whether that occupation is justified or not justified there 's a legitimate sense where there 's a justifying reason for it, and that is they are they need the high ground for for defense purposes and the West Bank is the high ground uh, if you take uh, Israel out of the West Bank and put them only in, in the state of israel they they can't the radar can 't see you know, Iran and, and anything else and so there 's defense reasons for, for doing that as well, but uh, at the same time um, Uh, that occupying presence uh, of the Palestinians has been oppressive. Um, And Palestinians uh, live on um, lack of water um, uh, for daily survival. Um, uh, They simply don't have enough water to survive on on, on a regular daily basis. Um, Freedom of movement is heavily restricted. And again, Israel will justify this because of um, the threat of terrorism, and that threat's been real. Um, But most Palestinians and most Israelis are just like you and me. They're, They're moms and dads husbands and wives, and they want their kids to grow up in peace, and they don't care about what all the political stuff that's going on there. The narrative that Israel, Palestines, Muslims, Christians, and Jews can't live in peace is just simply not true. They have for, for centuries, and they do want peace. So the Palestinians live um, lack of freedom of movement, lack of access to water. Uh, there's a wall being built around their, around uh, the West Bank that's encroaching on Palestinian lands that cuts farmland off from the, The people in Bethlehem, for example, the farmland is on the other side of the wall and they can't get to it. Even though the other side of the wall is not Israel, the other side of the wall is the West Bank. So they can't farm their own fields. And so unemployment in some of these places is 50% and greater uh, um, as a result of that. Uh, And then you have the settlements. Um, And I didn't know what a settlement was for many, many years, but settlements are Israeli citizens who are moving into the West Bank, Palestinian territory, and they're building cities. they start off as small encampments And some of these cities are 60,000 people. And they're massive cities with theaters and malls and shopping centers and parks. And there's plenty of water for the citizens of these settlements, even though it's an essentially stolen land, land that is part of the Palestinian uh, land. Um, And um, the Palestinians have lost their land as a result of the settlements. And now uh, uh, Israelis are living there with with guns and weapons um, and security um, and uh, prosper lost uh, or have even more uh, less farmland stuff to farm and so you have this tension that's growing there um, and uh, uh, it, it's in one sense understandable but not right why the Palestinians are responding with terrorism but understand you understand why Israeli why Israel is being um, heavy-handed um, and so the, the the problem that I see is how the church um, tends to weigh in on one side or the other you, you hmm. kind of have mainline denominations that often weigh in on hey, we're justice oriented and the Palestinians are suffering injust, uh, unjustly. And so they tend to be pro-Palestinian. And then you have the far right evangelical world you know, that I grew up in that's pro-Israel because this is God's chosen people and we have to protect them. Um, and um, uh, But we we're actually protecting them in many ways by allowing them and encouraging them to um, bring injustice uh, in the land. Uh, and then you add the Christians in the mix. All right? And then you add what we talked about here at the last hour, and that is the war in the book of Revelation is what the devil wages against God's people. (laughs) And you realize that the oppression of God's people in Israel and in Palestine and particularly in the Palestinian territories, um, and and I began to realize, hey, hey, I can't have a part in this. No way. You know, uh, stop. We have got to cry out first for God's people and then for the nations. As we cry out for God's people doing justice, that becomes our witness to the nations. And we cry out for the nations in love for the nations as well. We don't want... uh, um, Injustice for them either. So, it's a con- it's a complicated um, um, uh, issue. Um, but my my involvement is because the church is involved, uh, and in particular, um, the the evangelical far right church is involved. Um, I think by having a pro Israel view that's so strongly pro Israel that they neglect um, the justice uh, um, uh, of the Palestinians and and and. And and in all reality, by the way, if you love Israel, and I love Israel, um, you wouldn't want them to do what they're doing in the West Bank either because it's not good for Israel. Um, Because all they're doing is angering even more so than neighbors around them. So it's a a very complex, uh, not easily solved uh, puzzle um, for which I want to see God's people saying, we want justice for the sake of everybody involved. Mm, Amen. No more kids being killed, whether they're Israeli soldiers or Palestinian kids. Uh, by sniper no no more of
0: this we stop amen amen yeah Yeah, well rob that's i mean that's really important And perhaps what we could do is record a a separate conversation on that and release it as bonus content uh, for our patrons of the show uh, which would be awesome but i know uh, that we have to wrap things up i have some obligations and i know you do um so uh marty do you have anything you want to say i was just going to you know do my thank yous
1: yeah, I just have a, it's a very simple question. I think I've, I'm sure it's much, I'm sure it's not simple, but I'm, okay. I, I, I would maybe, maybe you can give a straight, simple answer. Uh, I've actually been reading a revelation with my four children. Mm. Uh, they're nine, eight, seven, and five. Oh, cool. um, and it is interesting sometimes to hear the, yes. like their, their thoughts on yes. things like that. Um, but uh, if if you were to Personally, um, like te- lead children of that age through the Book of Revelation. What are some narratives that you think would be important for them to walk away with? Because I think a lot of like you know eschatology and big and big picture even my, even, you know, micro or macro, however you want to look at it, some of that stuff may be lost on children of that age, but what are some things that you think uh, would be important for them to walk away with Mm. so that they at least have a a better understanding of revelation and eschatology kind of go about their early faith journey?
2: Okay. Yeah. uh, So I'll see if I can keep this as simple as possible. One is that God loves the nations and the Mm -hmm. people of the nations, and he wants to see them come into his kingdom. So watch the, watch the nations. It'll be nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues and different descriptions of them, right? Um, and, and watch what the scripture says about them. Now note that the nations are going to wage war against the church, against God's people, but that the nations are really in the purview of God and how they're going to be redeemed. And then note how the nations are redeemed by God's people, even though the nations wage war against us, how we lovingly respond to them um, and faithfulness making Christ known and how that leads then ultimately to the na- to the redemption of the nations so in the new Jerusalem it says the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring the glory into it ah there you go it happened see um, and and it's not through wrath um, and then of course you know depending on maybe the nine-year-old right um, how there's an enemy out there I wouldn't go too much with the, with the younger kids it might scare them too much there about that the, the narrative of the enemy and how the enemy opposes us. But you know what? You can use that, the Lord's Prayer to teach them because the Lord's Prayer says, deliver us from the evil one. Yeah. Right? And so, yeah. so if, if you kind of bring that into it, and I think the Lord's Prayer, right? Um, Bread and um, deliver us from the evil one. Right? right? Yeah. Um, and so um, if you use that, maybe use the, the Lord's Prayer and kind of weave that story in the Lord's Prayer, maybe that's a good way to do it.
1: Yeah, it's been interesting. One of the questions they've asked recurringly throughout, I think we're on chapter 13 or 14 or something like that. And they ask, why would God want to destroy? Like, why, why would God want to destroy his creation? Why would he want to send these plagues into his creation? Why would he want to do that? And so, you know, they've kind of had this overall "God loves you" from yep. Sunday school picture, you know, that God would just do very nice things. You know, the picture of the white Jesus with a smile on his face, you know, that kind of a image. And so, I think this is something that they, you know, they don't necessarily learn on Sunday school, you no. know, in kids' church. And so, it kind of is a different perspective. Uh, so, yeah, it was. It's just been. It's been been really interesting, a different perspective to see them come up with. So. Yeah. Well, cool.
2: Yeah, and then obviously the New Jerusalem is the restoration of creation. Right. Yeah. Not the so destruction. And you see, you know, the earth will be burned up in Second Peter, whatever. It, that's refining, right? right. It's purifying. It's not. It's destruction through restoration and right? right. resurrection. So yeah. yeah.
0: Thanks. Great. Well, right. yeah, Rob, thank you so much. We'll be sure to um, link uh, your website. I know you have a podcast. Uh, we'll link both of the both of the books you mentioned, all in our show notes. That way, people can find you.
1: Okay.
0: Um, yeah, and hopefully, we can get that. You know, schedule some some more time to do that bonus mm-hmm. content. I'm really really be interested to dig into that Israel Palestine yeah stuff with you. Okay, so, yeah. thank So, again, so much for your time. And uh, as always, listeners, thank you for listening. And go caps.
1: Go Blackhawks! Go <laughs>